Hey everybody, Pierre Quinn here. You're listening to episode 144 of the Leading Wild Grain podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Jim Ewell, author of the book, The Six Disciplines of Agile Marketing. Now, before we jump into that conversation with Jim, I want to thank you so much for supporting the Leading Wild Green podcast, for being a part of this journey, for sharing clips of it on social media, for recommending it to your family, friends and colleagues. It's been a pleasure serving you and being a part of your leadership development journey. My guest today is Jim Yule, and Jim is one of the leading voices on agile marketing. He co-organized the first meeting of Agile Marketers and co-authored the Agile Marketing Manifesto. Today, his blog is one of the most trusted sources on Agile. Yule runs an Agile Marketing Consultancy where he helps organizations adopt his tried and true approach to marketing. Here's my conversation with Jim Yule. I'm excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast by Jim Yule. Jim, thanks for being my guest today. Pierre, I'm excited to have this conversation today. Yeah, so, Jim, take me back. Let's hop in the time machine and let's go all the way back several years. What made you decide to be an English major? <laughs> that is going back a while. You know, um, I became an English major because, number one, I loved reading and I loved, you know, just learning and all the things that I could learn out of books. And at that time, I thought I wanted to be a college professor. I uh, I was going to be the next uh, Faulkner scholar, William Faulkner, if you know his work. Uh, and uh, I actually went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania to study English. And and then I saw the light. I, I'll tell you, I, 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 I realized, number one, how difficult it is. Uh, and then the second thing was that, you know, I came into the program and there were 12 of us uh, that were in the, you know, that freshman or not freshman, first year graduate student program. And, you know, four years later, I was watching the the, the seniors, you know, or the ones who, who were starting to finish. First of all, many of them took five and six years to finish. Mm-hmm. Second, out of, you know, 12 that started, four finished. And, and of those four, two got jobs and the jobs were paying then this is in 1979, uh, you know, about 20,000 a year, maybe. Okay. And also you had to go where the jobs were. And, and one guy was, was in Iowa and the other was, was out in uh, Utah. Okay. Uh, and at that time, I didn't know much about either one of those places, but neither one was a place that I, I was uh, ready to, to move to. So uh, I decided to adjust my career aspirations and uh, took off in kind of a different direction. Um, so you go from English major to to sales? Yeah, well, I, I, I went from English major to, it was kind of a, some steps in between. So I went first to a technical editor and a technical writer. I was working for a defense company as a technical editor with that English background, right? Uh, and then my, my boss at the time, a guy named Jack Santucci, I haven't seen Jack in, in many, many years, but Jack, um, said to me that he was having a problem uh, with a computer program. This is back on the days of mainframes, computer program that he had uh, outsourced. We, they didn't use that term back then, but that's what they were doing to another company. And, and I told him, 
you know, Jack, I can, I can program computers because my dad was a computer programmer. And I, I started working on computers when I was eight years old, going to my dad's office and, and they were very familiar to me. And I, in addition to being an English major, I'd taken three computer science courses in college. So I thought I could do this. Well, it turned out that this program was written in COBOL, a language I'd never seen before. And it was on an IBM mainframe, which I'd only worked on HP and, and uh, Digital Equipment Corporation uh, mainframes. Anyways, I, I taught myself that. And, and I was a software developer on mainframe computers for almost five years uh, in my early 20s. Um, and then I, I went into technical supportive sales. I, I, I saw the rep from IBM come in and they had this position they called systems engineer, which was basically the guy who went along with the salesperson to explain the technology, you know, and to keep the, tr the salesperson out of trouble, keep him from telling too many lies about what the technology could do. And I thought that looked like a pretty interesting job, you know, walk into a place and talk to everyone about the technology. And I, I love getting out. I've, I've always loved people and, it seemed to me a better thing to suit my personality compared to sitting at a green screen and writing code all day. And, and so I went to work for uh, what, when I interviewed was a division of IBM, actually on the day I started, they became a division of another company, which is kind of a strange thing, but anyways, that's what happened. It was at a company called Control Data. Uh, and I was there for a few years, had a great manager there, uh, one, the guy who taught me a lot about you know, how to manage people and, and how to set them up for success and, and things like that. Um, and then I, I, I went for, to work for another, uh, my, my wife moved to Chicago, took a job there. I went to work for a mainframe software company there and, and sort of got into management. Uh, but I realized, and this is in my early 30s by then, I, I realized that mainframes were not the wave of the future, that the future was personal computers. And there were two companies that seemed the most relevant to that dream, and that was Microsoft and Apple computers. Uh, and so I called up a headhunter, because that's the way I did things then. And, and I said, can you get me an interview at either of these two companies? And it took almost nine months, but he got me an interview first at Apple. Thank God that interview didn't go well and didn't work out because Amp Apple you know, they're so powerful today, but from 19, this would have been, oh, mid eighties, I guess, mm -hmm. or, or so they were not, you know, the dominant country, uh, the company that they, they are now. In fact, it was late eighties because um, I got the interview with Microsoft in late 88 and started in, in January of 1989 at Microsoft. That was the second interview. And, and that, those were heady times, uh, you know, for Microsoft. Uh, they had IPO'd uh, maybe a couple years before, uh, and but they were still not that large a company. I think they had three or four thousand employees when I started, something like that. Um, I was in the Chicago office, and I was employee number six in the Chicago office, so it was early days and exciting. Um, and I, I was in sales and sales management there. I did that for five years at Microsoft. Um, and then in 1984, I moved out here to Seattle and I kind of took, took a step down in Microsoft. I, I went from managing roughly 20, 25 people, something like that, about half the, the office then mm -hmm. in Chicago to being an individual contributor again. Uh, because I wanted to learn about 
marketing and what Microsoft called product management, which really was product marketing. Um, and there's where I found my tribe, you know, my people. Uh, I, I, I really found that I loved marketing. Marketing for me was about having an impact, not just on one company when you sold something to one company or, you know, the next company and, and, and that sort of thing. It was about how you could affect markets, how you could affect, you know, what was happening in large parts of technology. Um, when we launched um, Windows NT, which was the first product I worked on, we literally changed what people thought about Windows and went from being kind of a toy to being a business tool. Uh, when we launched a, a product called SQL Server, where I was a general manager, uh, we were for the, first, the first time taking on Oracle and some of the other big database companies. Uh, and, you know, it was a big change for Microsoft. And it went from being a you know, like a $90 million business when I started as GM there to, to being a billion dollar business in the next few years. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of thing just excited me and the opportunity to figure that out strategically, figure it out in terms of, you know, how you how you bring a team along to do those things. Um, those are the things that I, I cared a lot about. Um, and, um, and then I'll just continue the story unless you have questions about this, but um, I stayed at Microsoft for 12 years, uh, left as VP of server marketing there, uh, sort of marketing all the server products. Had a great run while I was there, learned a ton, worked with some great people, all that sort of thing. But I was ready for a change. I was tired for one thing. I'd worked a lot of hours, uh, a lot of travel, a lot of, of things. I took a year off, um, didn't do anything work-wise, just kind of... Um, Got in shape, uh, did a bunch of, of uh, biking. I, I started doing what called centuries, 100-mile rides, you know, and, and did this thing called the Seattle to Portland ride, which is 200 miles, uh, and, and moved to Paris uh, for a year, uh, went to cooking school. You know, did a bunch of things, were sort of bucket list things. Yeah. Loved doing that, but after maybe 14, 15 months, I was kind of like, Man, I want to. I want to get back in it. You know, I want to get back into doing something in business. And I, I, I sort of introduced myself to the startup scene here in Seattle, and and um, started doing some consulting. Worked myself into a job. Uh, took over a, a company that was kind of flailing and 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 having you know, having big problems. I mean, you could tell they were having such big problems because the VCs venture capitalists, they were willing to, to hire an untested CEO. I, I'd never been a CEO at that point. And you don't get a chance to come in as CEO if the company's doing really, really well. You know, they, they right. want somebody proven. And, and so so I came in, uh, turned that company around, uh, grew it. We eventually sold the company to Oracle, uh, and did pretty well for the, the, the stakeholders uh, there. Uh, then I met a couple guys in a coffee shop with a company called Adometry, uh, they had no sales, just kind of a prototype for a product. Uh, we got that company off the ground, sold it to an intermediate company, and eventually it was sold to uh, Google. Uh, and so we did okay again for our shareholders, some of which were my friends that I'd convinced to invest in me. So I was glad that one worked out. It was touch and go there for a while, but it, but it worked out for everybody. 
Um, and then I did one more startup, a company called In Demand Interpreting, which is in the healthcare space and kind of learned about that space. And we provided language interpreting over a video session like you and I are talking today um, to you know hospitals and doctors and physician practices. Somebody walks into the hospital and maybe they are deaf and they use sign language or maybe they speak Spanish or Russian or you know one of hundreds of languages that we supported. Uh, and we delivered an interpreter within usually under 10 seconds to be able to help that person get the health care that they needed and to be able to communicate with the physician uh, about their health care needs. Uh, and then we, we sold that company a few years ago. Um, and since then, I've, I've been going back to something that I started blogging about uh, 10 years ago, which was this topic called agile marketing. Uh, and that was... Agile is something that revolutionized software development. It's something that 95% plus of companies today use agile uh, methods for developing software, okay? Not every project, but, but most of the projects are done today using agile. And since I had a software development background, I understood marketing, I thought, well, God, how, how can we apply some of this to marketing? You know, there seem to be some things that could apply. Um, so I've been helping companies for about 10 years, including, you know, my startups uh, to, to use Agile for marketing. Um, and uh, it's been very successful. Uh, we now have roughly about 40 percent of marketers uh, practicing uh, Agile. Um, the latest survey is being done right now. I expect it's going to be over 50 percent uh, in this next survey. Uh, a lot of people turned to Agile uh, over 2020 because of the disruptions caused by COVID. Yeah. Um, and I also wrote a book, you know, uh, and published that this last year. So uh, uh, that, that that's my career kind of in a nutshell. Yeah. So let me stop and, and let you ask any questions you want to ask. It's really important for for the listeners of the podcast to get the, the backstory and the framework for how you got here so yeah. we dive into some of the deeper questions. They have this, this reference point uh, that makes sense. And there are a lot of people, you've done great work. You've worked with some amazing companies literally around the world. Yeah. Like, you know, as a marketer, there's a segment of people who've never heard of you and hearing your backstory is key to that. So I want to back up just a little bit and help us out with some maybe business school 101 introductory freshman terminology here. You've yeah. worked in sales and you've worked in marketing. Right. What's the what's the comparison and contrast contrast between the two? Because we throw those terms around a lot, especially as entrepreneurs on in this internet space. Yeah. You in your experience, how do you distinguish between sales practices and and marketing practices? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've thought about this a lot and, and it's actually changed over the years. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you asked me in the 1990s, I would have been very clear about, look, sales is about selling one-to-one. -one. It's being in front of a customer, right? And trying to understand that customer's needs and, and, and wants and what they're trying to do and trying to figure out if what you're offering, your products and services, match those needs and wants and, and, and essentially helping them buy, you know, but in a in a real one-on-one -on -one sort of way, right? And then marketing, I thought of as you're not selling one-to-one, -one, you are selling one-to-many. You are selling to markets, as it were, okay? And, and those are 
we, we sometimes think about those in terms of segments, right? So, uh, you know, if you're selling, if you're doing marketing for cars, we've all bought cars and we know the experience of going to talk to a car salesman, okay? But car, pe- car companies also have marketers and they might market to suburban housewives or they might, you know, market to sports car enthusiasts or they might, you know, market to uh, people who are environmentally conscious and, and want an electric vehicle or, you know, whatever the market is, right? And so I always thought about that difference as being one-to-one and one-to-many. But the internet, which you talked about before we got on this uh, call, uh, has changed everything. And, and one of the things that it has changed is is a little bit the distinction between sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean that many of us, when we are looking to buy something, we spend a lot of time on the internet researching. And this, by the way, goes for both business to consumer and also business to business uh, type of purchases, where we spend a lot of time on the internet trying to figure out what the best product is for us. In fact, one of the surveys that I mention in my book says that people are, are roughly 60% of the way through their buying process before they have any meaningful contact with the company. Okay, so before they talk to a salesperson, they're 60% of the way to making their decision. Mm-hmm. So who impacts with what you can impact that 60% that they go through? That's marketing. Okay, so marketing today is starting to also sell one-to-one in the sense that they influence what's on the website. Maybe they influence and try to get reviews and good reviews for the product. Maybe they're influencing social media and what's being said on social media about the product. So so now marketing is not just one-to-many. In many cases, it is one-to-one as well. So they've started to blur a little and, and the distinction is breaking down. What made you decide to start blogging on agile marketing? I wanted to learn how to blog and I wanted to learn how to build an audience. I mean, you know this from your podcasting, okay? It, it, it's one thing to interview someone like me and, and, and develop the skill for asking good questions and, and all that sort of thing. But it's a total different thing to build an audience for your podcast, right? And I wanted to learn how to do that. I wanted to figure out what content, you know, could could I be? I, I took a course back then uh, called Authority Blogger, and and the premise behind that uh, course was that if you can be the recognized authority in something, you can find a niche mm-hmm. that is your niche where you are recognized as the authority in that. People will come. You know, people who are interested in that will find you and and come and and so. I, I've been reading, um, you know, I was interested in marketing. I knew it was going to be about marketing. I read a, 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 a blog post from a guy that I've since become friends with and who wrote the foreword to my book, a guy named Scott Brinker. And Scott wrote a blog post uh, called uh, Some Ideas for a Manifesto for Agile Marketing or something like that. The the, the blog post is still on the internet, okay? And, um, and I thought man, that is fascinating, you know? And I looked around and said, is anybody writing about this? And nobody was, okay? Somebody did own the, the 
agilemarketing.com uh, URL or that, that site, uh, right. but they weren't using it. They, they, they just had it parked. Okay. And so I bought agilemarketing.net and I started writing about it. And, and, you know, and pretty soon I became the authority of, you know, one of the authorities, certainly about agile marketing. I organized the first meeting of agile marketers where we actually did, as Scott suggests, we did issue an agile marketing manifesto. Scott came to that meeting, a bunch of other people who I kind of got to know through my early days of blogging came to that meeting and, and we wrote it. Okay. Um, and then I started helping people and I just kind of, you know, spiraled up from there observation and the assertion that you make traditional marketing it's dead in many aspects it's broken Take that out down for us i know some people are listening to this and like what who is this guy what is he talking about this <laughs> forever and i've had success but you make some very strong arguments that the whole process the framework from which we look at marketing is broken there there is a better way yeah yeah i i i do argue that uh, Look, you can have success with traditional marketing. I'm not arguing that you can't, and you can't in the in, and you didn't in the past, in particular. Okay, I did in the past in 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 traditional marketing. However, now and moving forward, you're hamstringing yourself and and limiting yourself if you do certain traditional practices. Okay, and let me just cover a few just to give you uh, some examples. I think the traditional marketing plan is broken. Okay, um, I don't have it too near me, but over in the in the closet, over to my left here, I have a marketing plan that I wrote in two no 1999 at, at Microsoft, right? And it was 159 pages thick. Uh, it was actually done as a PowerPoint presentation because that's how we did marketing plans back then. We presented them to Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer and and. Uh, uh, and, and that's how you did your marketing plans. The day after I presented that, I put it in a drawer and I never looked at it again until the day that I left in early 2001 at Microsoft. Okay. I mean, literally, I never looked at it again. Yeah. And this is one of the things that's wrong with the traditional marketing plan. They're too long. They don't get updated regularly. Nobody looks at them because they're so long. Okay. Um, there is there some value in planning? Sure. And was there some value in doing that? But was there commensurate value? I don't know. I mean, I had a team of people back then, and I probably had my top four or five people spending half their time on it for three months. Okay. I mean, just insane amounts of really smart, valuable people's time to come up with that 159 page plan, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Instead, what I recommend today is that people do what I call napkin plans, okay? They're not literally written on a napkin, but, you know, to give you the idea. So they're short, one or two pages, okay? If you can't put what you have to say in one or two pages, you're not working hard enough, okay? Get it down to one or two pages. Number two, they're visual. You should have a visual part of your marketing plan that's explains it all, okay, in that visual, because we as human beings process visual information and we remember visual information much better than we remember the written word, okay? So last company I did some work for, it was actually a nonprofit that I was doing some pro bono work for. I was the chief marketing officer and the chief operating officer for this company. I did a marketing plan and it was a single visual and a three-minute video. That's how I delivered the marketing plan, 
Okay. There was, there was a written version of it, but that's not what I gave anybody. What I gave everybody was the visual uh, thing of it. Okay. So make it, make it visual. Third thing about napkin plans, you know, the, the, the image you have of a napkin plan or, you know, somebody coming up with a business and writing their business plan on a napkin is that there's this waste paper basket next to them, right? And there are about 50 discarded versions of that napkin plan in that waste paper basket. That's the same thing you need to do with your marketing plans. And by the way, the way that you, you revise those is not by sitting in your office and just cogitating by yourself. Um, Steve Blank, who's one of the top experts on, you know, how to build uh, startup uh, companies. Okay. Steve says there are no facts inside the building. So get out of the building. Okay. And what he means by that, of course, is go talk to people, right? You don't have to literally today in the world of Zoom, get out of the building, but go talk to people and get feedback, present that napkin plan to people. They'll tell you, does it work or it does it not work? Most of the time, they'll tell you what's wrong with it. Throw that one out, revise it and do that 40, 50 times. Okay. And, and just keep updating that, that, that plan. I look at my marketing plans once a month. Okay. That's kind of my, my schedule to do that. All right. And I, you know, I've known people who look at it weekly. Okay. But at least look at it once a month. Don't, that's another thing. Doing marketing plans once a year, twice a year, forget that. The world changes too fast you know, to be able to do that. Um, so that's one way I think that the traditional marketing is broken. Uh, well, I was going to ask you as, as you're writing these thoughts and as you're filling up these blog posts, at what point, at what point do you say, I need to put this in a book? <laughs> well, there's a story behind that. And um, well, it, it's a couple things. One, one is I did start to write the book about six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I was actually planning to do it with a co-collaborator, co-author. And um, when we really got down to it, we had two different books in mind. He wanted to write a book about sort of the intellectual underpinnings, if you will, for agile marketing. Okay. And he wrote a brilliant book. It's called Hacking Marketing by Scott Brinker. I brought his name up several times. He's one of my heroes. Um, But but Scott wrote this brilliant book called Hacking Marketing, and it's mainly about, you know, where, where did the ideas for agile marketing come from? What's the intellectual underpinning? It's written for C- chief marketing officers, CMOs, okay? I wanted to write a very different book. I wanted to write a book that helps individual marketers and small teams to pragmatically use agile marketing to improve their marketing. Okay. Well, to really do that well, I had to help. I mean, at this point, I've helped about 60, I I just counted them the other night, 68 companies, okay, adopt agile marketing, right? And I learned a lot since I first started thinking I was going to write the book that went into the book. And by the way, I continue to learn. So I continue to think, I wish I put this in the book. And, you know, that's what thing that happens. The other thing, quite frankly, is that my wife got after me and said, you've been talking about this book for years. Get to it, bud. You know, and she did in the nicest possible way. You know, my wife is wonderful. You know, great things. But that's it really was. I had to get the experiences in order to really write the book. Um, and then my wife was so encouraging about it. So are you are you sure that there are six disciplines? 
<laughs> well, you know, there there could easily be more. I, I actually at one point thought about leaving one of them out. You know, you got to at some point choose, you know, in doing it. But uh, yeah, so I chose the title, The Six Disciplines of Agile Marketing. And, and that came from, I originally started with what is in the book, Discipline Three, which is about process, okay? So agile software development uses processes like Scrum and Kanban and, and Scrumban are the three most popular. They, there's a few more they use. But when I first got started with agile marketing, I thought the whole job was to translate those processes or methodologies, as they're called, into marketing terms, okay? And that is part of what I do in, in, in uh, discipline number three. But what I found in working with companies is that I had to back up and there were two other things that I had to address before we could get to that business of applying the methodologies. And those two things were alignment and structure. So alignment is making sure that you as a marketer are aligned on three things. One is, why are you thinking about adopting Agile marketing? Okay. I always say change is hard. And if you're going to, if you're going to do change, you better have a good reason. And it's good to articulate to yourself and the people who are changing with you, your team, why you're considering change. Okay. Because that'll keep you going. Okay. That'll, that's the thing that's going to give you the guidance of, here's why we're changing and here's how we're going to see the early indicators, the leading indicators that we are making change. And here's how we are going to start measuring that we're being successful. What does success look like? If you can't answer that question, you're not going to get there. Right. Um, So that's the first area of alignment. The second area of alignment is with the business. Okay. I hear this complaint all the time about marketers from, business people from non-marketers. They say, marketers don't speak my language. And they say, you know, I I don't get marketing. It seems like black magic to me. I mean, sometimes it just seems like pixie dust that they spread over things that doesn't seem much useful to me. Or sometimes it really works and I have no clue how and, and why, okay? So you need to get aligned with the business to one, understand what they're what motivates them, how they're measured, what their priorities are, you know, what their goals are, all that sort of stuff. And also make that a two-way street so that they understand you and how you work and what you're capable of and what you can't do and all that sort of stuff. So get aligned, um, you know, with the business. Then the third area of alignment is with the customer. Mm -hmm. Everybody should be talking the same language about, you know, why do customers buy? our product or service, okay? What is it about, what problems do we solve for them, okay? What, what's, you know, what are the things that they really care about and, and how do we present that? What's our, we call it brand voice in, in marketing, okay? That's just a fancy term for, you know, how do we talk to customers, okay? Is it formal? Is it casual? Is it, you know, what is it? You know, we should have a, a unique personality, if you will, in terms of how we talk to customers. So getting all that stuff straight among the group is that there is a third area of alignment. The second major discipline is structure. Most marketing teams today are structured around skill sets or, you know, kind of what they can do. So you have people who are really good with um, 
you know, the tools from Adobe because uh, that's what everybody uses, right? And so they're, right. they're the creatives, you know, or, or you have people who are really good with social media, or maybe you have the people who are really good at advertising and, and you have that group. And then you have uh, product management. And I mean, you have all these different groups. Mm-hmm. But if you think about, you're starting to work with the business people. They don't care about those groups. They care about solving their problem. And, and you know, they care about sales, profits, you know, returning customers, getting people in the in the uh, store if they're a retailer, you know, all those things that they care about, okay? They don't care how you do it. They don't care what skill sets you need. And so what I talk about in this chapter is how to use cross-functional teams where you pull people together who have different skill sets and you put them together in a team to address a strong business problem, okay? And you don't pass the business problem from team to team to team. You get the team and you bring, you know, the business things to them and they start solving that and they start thinking about business. And by the way, you then start going beyond the bounds of marketing and you start saying, oh, we're going to have two marketers and one, you know, business person who knows this thing and then we're going to have one finance person and you know, pretty soon you've got cross-functional teams that go beyond marketing to really start solving the customer's issues because customers, they care about you as a company, all right? The fact that it's finance that decided not to extend them credit, they, they you know, they, they don't care about that. They, they, whatever your brand is, that's what they care about and, and doing that. So, um, so I go, go into that. So anyway, so those are the first three uh, disciplines there, alignment, structure, and then process, you know, that I talked about earlier. Um, And then I get into the other disciplines just really quickly. Discipline number four is validated learning. We marketers, we make a lot of assumptions, okay? We assume, you know, because you're a certain age or where you live or uh, any of whatever things that we know about you that you buy, like everybody who's like you, you know, like I'm a baby boomer. Right. And um, so people assume I don't understand technology and I need to be helped with technology. <laughs> I've been doing technology all my life. Thank you very much. I'm pretty good at it. Okay. So I don't look like a baby boomer when it comes to technology. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that you want to do is to test your assumptions about people. Okay. How do you do that? Well, you do that through a lot of testing and analytics. And one of the things that we've discovered in marketing is that the faster you can turn the crank, the faster you can test things, the faster you learn, and the faster you learn, the better you get at marketing. Okay. And so there's something to be said just for doing it a little quicker. One of the examples I talk about in the book is an example from Twitter. Mm-hmm. Where um, I'm forgetting the guy's name right now. Sorry. Anyways, I'll think about it. Um, Satya Patel. Satya Patel came into Twitter 2010 or so. It was a while ago. And one of the things he asked them was, "How often do you guys run tests on you know to see about new user acquisition?" And they said, "Well, we run one test at a time, and it takes us about two weeks to run a test." So they were effectively effectively running one half test a week. Okay. He said, that's not enough. And he said to them, I want you to figure out how to run two tests per week. So four times as many as they were running then. They got to that. They ran two tests a week. He said, great. Now do five tests a week, then 10 tests a week. You know, So he kept 
raising the bar. And because they were testing more often, you can see the slope of new user acquisition just go up. It went up like 300%. The numbers are in the book. I don't remember the exact numbers anymore. But anyways, the, 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 the acquisition of new users increased just by virtue of testing more often. Okay, because you test more often, you learn more often. You learn more often, you get better. Um, that's that's uh, number four. Um, number five, you're gonna. It's, number five is for some reason the one that I always forget. You know. Oh yes, five is adapting to change. Of course. Yeah. Right. So, adapting to change. Um, yeah, I mean that's re- really relevant this year. You know, uh, I, everybody was kind of blindsided by. COVID, not just personally, but also by the business changes, you know, and, and what happened there. Um, I was talking to one of my clients in March, uh, you know, just after things had started to go crazy. And and I had trained them about a year and a half before that. And he thanked me. He said, you know, if we had not adopted Agile, we'd probably be out of business now because literally more than 50% of our revenue just disappeared overnight. Okay, because we were real dependent on the travel industry, right? And everything was about going on these vacations to different places and so forth, right? And 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 nobody was doing that. And so they had to pivot, you know, and they had to do some very different things. And they used a lot of the things that that I taught him in, in agile marketing. And you know, adapting to change, there are some natural benefits that just come from using the process because we plan every two weeks and we do this stuff. But there are also some techniques that I teach to help people learn how to adapt, you know, more quickly, how to have your eyes and ears out there for potential changes, uh, what to do to respond to those, you know, that kind of thing. So that's the fifth discipline. And the sixth discipline sort of sums it all up. It's called what I call creating remarkable customer experiences. What what we found in marketing in the last few years is that people are not buying products and services. They're buying experiences, right? I don't want so much more stuff in my house. I've got, if I turn my uh, camera here, you would see my desk is full of stuff, you know, that I have here. I don't, I don't need any more stuff. What I'm more interested in right now is, is having experiences, you know, meeting people, seeing new things. I mean, it's one of the things that has made COVID so difficult for people, right? So how do you create those remarkable customer experiences? And that's not just about travel or about, you know, those kinds of things. It's also about, think about the experience that you have and this is somewhat pre-COVID, going into an Apple store mm-hmm. and how much that is part of their brand. You know, I can go to a genius bar. I can go in and I can try something out for as long as I want in the store and nobody's going to bother me. And I can try every product they have there. That's about an experience. Okay. And it's remarkable, both in the terms of it's a great experience, but also because I tell other people about it. I went to the Genius Bar. This guy solved my problem like that. That's why I buy Apple products, okay? It's not that they're cheaper. They're not cheaper, okay? That's the reason that I that I do it. So those are the six disciplines. Now, as as a former Microsoft guy, can, can you say that? Can you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I will tell you, I went into an Apple store 
about two years ago and ran into one of my bosses at Microsoft, one of the top five people at Microsoft at the time. So uh, yeah, I mean, Windows is great. And, and Satya, uh, uh, God, I'm forgetting the new CEO's name uh, at uh, Microsoft, uh, Satya Nadella, Satya Nadella. Satya um, has done a great job with the company. Windows is every, it, it's, a, it's a great product now and they're doing some great things. I've actually considered going back to it. It's just now the switching costs for me because I've gotten so used to the yeah. Mac. Uh, but at the time I switched, you know, Windows was going through some trouble and, and uh, it seemed like a good time to switch. But, but they're doing very well now. So I admire what he's done there. You, you mentioned that genius bar, you know, that experience of being in an Apple store, just that, that for those of us who have been to an Apple store, we know exactly what you're talking about. Right. Those, and this, the first time you do it, it's kind of like this watershed moment. Right. You think, man, how can I get back and how can I relive that particular experience? Yeah. And as entrepreneurs, as business owners, we have those experiences sometimes with clients too. We have like this case study client where we say, I wish every client, every experience, every project was like this. I know you mentioned one of them as, as related to teaching a client certain practices to help them get through COVID, but another client on your list, maybe you change names and locations and all that stuff. But when you think about teaching them, training them on agile principles, their application, and then the impact of that, what's, what's one of those stories where you walked away saying, yep, this is, this is why I do what I do. Yeah. So I have a number of case studies in the book. Uh, I think there are about six or seven case studies in the book. And, you know, one of them is of a small uh, manufacturing company in the Midwest in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. Uh, it's a company called Space Saber. And um, when I came in there, one of the things that was true in that marketing department, and, and it's true in a lot of marketing departments, is that um, sales did not have a very good opinion of marketing, okay? <laughs> and marketing found it very difficult to work with sales. Uh, and one of the things that I did in the two days that I was there training them is I invited sales to come in for lunch. I asked them, I said, would you invite a sales guy? Get a sales guy who, he's not just willing to come to lunch, but he's really wanting to work with you. You know, he's willing to put up with, there's going to be some fits and starts and some things that doesn't work and all that stuff. Get somebody who's really enthusiastic about working with you. Brought this guy in, you know, and we just asked him some of the basic questions. What is marketing doing well today? What are they not doing so well? Okay. What can marketing do in the next 30 days, 30 to 60 days that would just really make you feel good about marketing and, and, and their value to you, right? So we had that conversation and it was helpful to them, but then they did the hard work, okay? Because it wasn't just that one conversation because that developed a little bit of trust, but there was still a lot of distrust there, right? They had to you know, keep coming back at it and keep, you know, finding things where they could help sales and being honest with sales about when things weren't working. Um, you know, one of the other concepts I talk about the book is, is this concept called vanity metrics. And mm-hmm. Boy, marketers use this all the time, right? Yeah. They're yeah. Metrics that make us feel good. You know, they're things that say, oh man, you know, I got this many 
hits on my blog or I had this many listeners who downloaded my podcast or, you know, whatever it is, right? But if you're a business person, that doesn't pay the rent, right? What pays the rent is, you know, things like, you know, sales, but you can understand how conversions, you know, somebody converting from coming up to the, the customer to putting something in the, um, you know, the, the shopping cart to actually paying for it with a credit card. Okay. That, that I get, you know, and that, that's something I care about. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, you know, this, they developed the trust that the measurements that they were providing were real metrics that business cared about and were honest. Okay. They weren't cheating. Cause that was another thing. Sales thought, okay, you're sending me these leads, but you're cheating. Those leads are not any good, you know, all this sort of stuff. So they had to have a discussion about what's a good lead, right? So they developed this trust over time. And, and the guy that I interviewed, Eric, for the book, he said the, the moment that he knew that something had really changed was when he was in a meeting with this guy as a peer with the CEO of the company. And the CEO said something about hey, you guys adopted this agile marketing stuff. Is that really working? And he kind of asked it as if, come on, you know, that, that stuff is, is, is more pixie dust, right? Yeah. And, and the sales guy spoke up and he said, absolutely, it's working. And let me tell you why, okay? Wow. And that was so much more, um, you know, the CEO believed him. Okay. He believed the sales guy because, you know, he, he spoke up for the marketing guy. And, and so that, that was when he knew that he developed that trust and, and that relationship. So I felt t- great about that, you know, that, that I'd had one small part in helping him do that. Uh, uh, and by the way, uh, Eric has now gone out and founded his own agile marketing agency where he is wow. helping other people, uh, you know, adopt agile marketing, not adopt, but, but he's using agile marketing to help them reach their business goals. So, um, you know, it's changed his career. Who did you have in mind when you were writing this? Who, whose hands did you want this book? Yeah. Who did I want to have their hands on this book? Um, so, as I said earlier, it, it, it wasn't a book that was written for chief marketing officers or, you know, their direct reports, you know, very senior marketing people. There are some sections in the book that I think they will find relevant. And, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I really wrote this for individual marketers and teams of marketers who they're struggling. They are, in many cases, overwhelmed. They are being asked to do all kinds of things that they weren't asked to do five and 10 years ago, yeah. uh, even just in 2020, right? They had a plan going into 2020. Here's what we're going to do. Bam, COVID comes around, something changes. Their business is just blown up, right? And their marketing plans are just blown up. And I really wrote it for them, okay? And um and they are the ones who initially are, are, are the ones that are coming to me uh, and, and really love the book. I, I, I have a book study group that I formed where I've told people, you buy a copy of the book and send me your receipt and you can join this book study group for free. Right. And I get, you know, roughly 60 people on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time. So pretty early, you know, on a Saturday uh, that take time out of their day to have me spend about half an hour talking about 
a particular chapter in the book and then half an hour answering questions from them. And it's mostly individual marketers, okay, and people who are on, on teams. I said that there are parts of the book that are that CMOs will find some value in, and that's really the second half of the book, where in addition to, to talking about the six disciplines, I talk about what I call the four shifts, okay? And the four shifts are really about how do you change the culture of an organization and what kind of shifts, you know, have to happen in order for companies to, to really make, you know, that shift, okay? And there are things like, a shift from an emphasis on out from outputs, okay, to outcomes. What do I mean by that? Yeah. Many marketing departments focus on generating advertising, you know, uh, campaigns. They focus on generating uh, content for what's called content marketing, so blog posts and videos and all that kind of stuff. They focus on you know, social media things and doing those things, all those are outputs, okay? What we want is marketers who start thinking about outcomes, okay? What is the behavior that they want potential customers or existing customers who they're trying to get to expand their business? What behaviors do they want? And then from there, what are the outputs or what are the things that we need to do to drive those behaviors, right? So if my outcome is more feet in, in the store, okay, more people coming into the store, what do I need to do to drive traffic into the store, okay? But start with the outcome. And that has to be the mentality of marketers. So that's a shift in mentality, okay? The second shift is from a campaign mentality to continuous improvement, marketers think in terms of campaigns. They talk about campaigns endlessly. If you look at anything like you go to Facebook's uh, tool for doing advertising, it all talks about campaigns. So does Google's. You know, anything to do with marketing talks about campaigns, okay? But many campaigns are done for months at a time. You know, they, they, they run these campaigns and then they come back and if the campaign didn't work, they don't admit that. Instead, they find these vanity metrics that are going to support this story that the campaign was great and they celebrate victory. They declare victory, whether it happened or not. Okay. What I suggest is that people start really small. Okay. Take a small idea, build the smallest test you can to test this thing. Okay. And then if it doesn't work, you haven't spent much money. If it does work, then figure out how can you make it a little bigger? How can you optimize it? How can you continuously improve this thing so that eventually you're going to have a super successful campaign? But don't start big, start small and continuously improve. Third shift is from being internally focused to customer focused, okay? And here the, the idea is to get beyond the happy talk. Everybody says they're customer focused. Yeah. But if you look at where they spend their time, they spend all their time in internal meetings. You know, they don't spend time you know, with customers, right? So how do you shift? Well, number one, you shift where you spend your time, okay? Number two, you shift in terms of your mindset. Am I selling to this customer or am I helping them buy? Hmm. Nobody likes to be sold to, but lots of people like to buy, yeah. you know? If, I get a, if I'm thinking about a new car, it's kind of exciting, you know? I'm going out there to buy a new car, but boy, I'm sold to, uh, man, that turns me off, right? So it's just, it's a change in mentality uh, to do that stuff, okay? And then the fourth shift is from 
top-down to decentralized decision-making, right? So too many organizations, all the decisions are made up top and pushed down, and then the information flows back up. It's not healthy, okay? The, The analogy I use is the body, okay? Body's really smart about a lot of things, right? Take, for example, if I put my hand on a hot stove, okay? Mm-hmm. If the information that I put the, my hand on that hot stove had to travel all the way back up to my cerebral cortex and then all the way down to tell my hand to come off there, I'd burn my hand really badly, okay? That's not actually how the body works. The body has this autonomous nervous system, pulls your hand off right away before you even think about it, right? I mean, that's the way the body works. Well, we can actually apply that to a lot of organizations, Think, for example, of all the problems that the Navy has had in recent years of of ships having accidents, you know, crashing into, you know, submarine crashing into a a ship uh, carrying oil or something like that, right? I guarantee you there were sailors who were out on the deck who knew that ship was going to crash in time to do something about it. Yeah. And what happened instead of them doing something about it is it they woke the captain up explain the situation by the time the captain could do anything about it, they crashed. Okay. I mean, this is the way organizations work and we've got to change that. It's not that some decisions should be made at the top. They absolutely should, but you want to take the decisions that can be made lower down and where the information is. Okay. And you want to increasingly have those decisions decentralized. So I've talked forever there. No, no, this is this is this is great stuff because it shows that you're not just a an author of a book, but that you actually practice these principles and teach other people how how to do it as well. And it's, it's yeah. good for listeners to to hear to hear uh, a deeper dive into some of the content that you've shared. Now, I call this section of the podcast, Jim. I call it shameless plug time. I know you just don't write books. You do a lot of other things. Yeah. And I I want you to let people know how they can get a copy of of your book, but you also provide some coaching and training and instruction as it relates to agile marketing that uh, I want you to let folks know about as well. So yeah, shameless plug. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you can buy the book pretty much anywhere books are sold. You know, my local independent bookseller has copies of it. Okay. So if you happen to be on Mercer Island, go to Mercer Island books and buy a copy. Okay. Uh, My, uh, of course, Amazon has copies of the book and both domestically and and internationally, at least in English uh, speaking countries, we haven't translated it yet, but hopefully we'll get there. Um, And then, uh, you know, you can buy it at Barnes and Noble, you can buy it at, you know, any, any place uh, that, that pretty much books are sold. You mentioned some of the other things that I do and, and, um, so the two other things that I do is I teach. Uh, so I have two courses. One is focused at those individual marketers and, and, and teams of marketers, and it is for certification. You can get your certification as an agile marketer. That certification is produced um, uh, by a company called the International Consortium for Agile, or IC Agile, Okay. And uh, if you want information about those courses, just go to the contact page on on my uh, website, agilemarketing.net, okay? That's my website. And um, and I'll send you the latest schedule. And the other thing that I'm doing, by the way, I'll just talk about this. I haven't talked about this to anybody else. You're going to hear about it first, okay? I noticed that on your website, you have a course um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it, you use a platform called Thinkific, okay? And I happen to use the same platform. That's one of the reasons I noticed it. But 
it was kind of about getting your head straight or something. What, tell, what was the name of the course? Do a little yeah. shameless plug for your course. <laughs> so uh, Four Nights to Clarity. So how do Four you Four Nights to Clarity. I love that. I love that title, right? So I'm, I'm doing a, a course on that platform on agile marketing. But then also I teach courses over Zoom. I, I'm back teaching tomorrow. Uh, I'm teaching a course. I've got another another uh, course, another company I'm teaching on Thursday. So I, I, I teach that. And then the last thing I do is coaching. Uh, and, and I try to focus on coaching and doing a lot more listening than talking. I know I haven't done that today, but I actually am a pretty good listener. Uh, and um, I don't try to give people the answers. I mean, I have my answers from being in business for 35 years and the things that work for me, but let's face it, I'm a different person and the, and the, the world's changed. And, you know, I, I have the things that work for me and I have a lot of stories and a lot of things that may give you some ideas, but you got to find your own answers, right? And so I try to help you do that, okay? And I try to ask a lot of questions to try to get you to see things that I know you know, okay? But you're kind of blinded by it. Um, that's the way that the best coaches have worked for me. When I was a CEO, I I had some good CEO coaches. And, and they asked me some questions that with hindsight were totally obvious, okay? But I wasn't seeing it until they asked me the question, right? And if I can do that for another person, then that's what I consider success as a coach uh, is asking him those questions. Um, so that's the way I, I approach coaching. I do a lot of coaching around agile marketing, of course. That's mainly what I do coaching. But any part of marketing and any part of, of, of trying to, you know, do things in business, I, 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 I do that kind of coaching as well. Oh, Jim, this uh, podcast episode was not designed for you to listen. It was designed for you to do a lot of talk. <laughs> Thank you for accomplishing that today. My guest on this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast has been Jim Yule, author of The Six Disciplines of Agile Marketing. Jim, thanks for being my guest today. Pierre, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. great conversation with Jim Yule about his book, The Six Disciplines of Agile Marketing, and about his story, about his journey, about so many of the lessons that he has learned along the way. I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of his book, The Six Disciplines of Agile Marketing. We put links in the show notes. Follow up on Jim and his work. Check out the Agile Marketing Manifesto. All the links are in the show notes, so you got no excuse. You're just one click away. And I know you took a lot of notes from this conversation that are going to benefit you and your organization, not in the future, but right now, as soon as you apply them. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green podcast. You know, it's my mission to help you live, learn and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.